You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Lena Wynn, an emergency physician and professor at George Washington University, joins Washington Post Live to discuss her new book, Lifelines, a doctor's journey in the fight for public health. Let's listen. Good morning and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Paige Winfield Cunningham, a health policy reporter here at The Post. And today my guest is Dr. Lena Wen. She's the author of a new book called Lifelines, A Doctor's Journey in the Fight for Public Health. And she's also a contributing columnist to The Post. Welcome back to Washington Post Live, Lena. Thank you very much, Paige. It's a great pleasure to join you today. So I want to talk about your book, but first, let's start with breaking news. We're hearing that the Centers for Disease Control is going to be issuing this afternoon a new set of guidelines, actually calling on people who have been vaccinated against the coronavirus to resume mask wearing in some circumstances. Um, Can I get your reaction to that? I know that you and I have spent a lot of time through the pandemic talking about previous guidance and what was maybe good and not so good about it. And you have a lot of thoughts on that. But what do you what do you think about this latest news about updated guidance? Well, I think it's unfortunate that we are where we are, but we have to acknowledge that the situation has changed from even a month ago. I mean, COVID-19, the number of new daily infections is five times where they were a month ago. We have the Delta variant, which a person infected with the Delta variant gets a thousand times the viral load than with the previous variants. So the situation has changed. And we also know that the honor code that the CDC was relying on earlier did not work as many of us predicted that it wouldn't. And so there has been a growing chorus of public health officials calling on the CDC, calling on the Biden administration to change their guidance and to try to rein in this latest surge. And so I was one of those people, I have been one of those people. And so I think that their guidance certainly is very important. It will be disappointing for people to hear. And I want people to know that the guidance is coming out not because the vaccines aren't working, but rather the actions of the unvaccinated are setting all of us back. The unvaccinated, the infections among the unvaccinated are spilling over into the vaccinated. And this is the reason why masks are coming back. And I think at this point, the CDC and the Biden administration need to go a lot further than mask mandates. They really need to get behind vaccine requirements and proof of vaccination. Well, and I want to talk about requirements, but let's just talk about the science that we know and and how our understanding has changed, or perhaps the Delta variant has changed what we know. I know back in May, you and I talked a lot about how it seemed as though the vaccines were quite effective in terms of not only preventing serious disease, but also preventing spread of the virus. But it looks like now with the Delta variant, it turns out people actually can have a much larger viral load. Can you talk a little bit about how you see the science on this as sort of changing or our understanding unfolding and then uh, and then sort of dictating what the new guidance should be on mask wearing? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think a lot of people are going to be looking at the CDC's guidance today and wondering, well, is it flip-flopping? Well, it's not flip-flopping if the science has changed as in constant reevaluation is the bedrock of public health policy. You wouldn't expect for the policy to be static if the science is changing. What we know is that the vaccines that we have are very protective still against severe disease, severe enough to cause hospitalization or death, such that more than 99% of people who are dying from COVID in this country are unvaccinated. So you're essentially protected from dying from coronavirus if you get vaccinated. That's huge. And that's the reason why we have these vaccines. That said, 
we don't know the degree to which the vaccines that we have protect you from contracting COVID-19 or giving it to others. Again, you're unlikely to get severely ill yourself. But I think many of us are wondering if we live at home with unvaccinated children. I, I have a one-year-old and an almost four-year-old. I think a lot of parents are in this position where the parents are vaccinated, but our young kids are not. Or what if we live at home with someone who is immunocompromised? Even if I don't get very sick, I don't want to be bringing back the virus to our loved ones. And so I think that, I hope that that is what the CDC will be acknowledging today too, that we just don't know what the Delta variant because of this higher viral load, what is the likelihood that we could be carriers for coronavirus and transmit it to others around us? And that's why in the absence of that information, using an abundance of caution, specifically urging mask wearing in indoor crowded spaces is a good idea. What details are you specifically looking for from the CDC this afternoon? Do you think that this guidance should be geographic? Should it be related to the transmission of the virus in certain communities? Should it be nationwide? What kinds of details would you like to see? What I would love to see is for there to be a blanket indoor mask guidance that's given with some exceptions, two specific exceptions. One is to say that if the community has reached a high level of vaccination, and I think that would also help to motivate different parts of the country to achieve that rate, then indoor mask mandates can be dropped. The second, and I actually think it's even more important, is to say when there is proof of vaccination, then indoor mask requirements don't need to be in place. As in, we still believe that vaccinated people, if they are around others who are also, who are also fully vaccinated, their chance of being a carrier for coronavirus and then transmitting it to someone else is pretty low. And then the other vaccinated person, their chance of actually acquiring coronavirus is very low. And so vaccinated around unvaccinated um, would be not safe, but vaccinated around vaccinated would also be safe. And so I think that kind of guidance, that very specific one detail would be really critical for the CDC to give that also helps to pave the way for institutions like workplaces that are coming back for in-person or schools and campuses that would encourage vaccine mandates in those situations, but then also allow for an environment that's not only safe, but also comfortable. As in now these individuals, if you're surrounded by also vaccinated people, you do not need to be wearing a mask or practicing distancing. One other thing that we're seeing now, and I think this is a response to the rise of Delta, is more willingness among governmental authorities and others to mandate the vaccine. We saw that yesterday the VA said it's going to require the vaccine for its employees. We saw the mayor of New York, the governor of California. Do you anticipate seeing more in this vein, more requirements? Yes, and it cannot come soon enough. We have hit a wall when it comes to vaccinations in this country. We're just not going to get even where close to the vaccine levels that we need in order to prevent another surge of, um, a, a, uh, of coronavirus and the development of new mutations and new variants over time. Really, what we need to do is to make a decision as a society. I mean, we have laws, for example, against drunk driving. You can drink in your home or in private if you would like. But we have a law saying that if you want to get behind a wheel where you could potentially endanger other people, then that's not allowed. That's against the standards of conduct in our society. I think at some point we need to make a similar decision about the vaccine. You can remain unvaccinated if you so choose. But if you want to be in public, 
and potentially could be infecting others with a dangerous and sometimes fatal disease that's highly transmissible, then there's an obligation of society. I mean, I think you could have an opt-out the way that France, for example, or Italy and other countries are doing, saying that if you want to be in bars, restaurants, movie theaters, et cetera, either be vaccinated or have proof of a recent negative test. I hope that we move in that direction as a country here, because at the end of the day, I don't really understand why people have the choice to be infecting um, our vulnerable children or immunocompromised people or even others who have taken the responsible choice to get vaccinated. Uh, I want to be a contrarian for a second and 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 ask the question, though, are we freaking out too much about this? There some have made the case that, yes, we're seeing cases go up. We are seeing hospitalizations go up in certain areas. The question is, are we going to see deaths go up at the same rate that we saw previously, considering that the older populations of people are more highly vaccinated and we're seeing more cases among the younger folks? How would you respond to that? Well, first of all, I would say that I think they're right in some ways that I don't think and I certainly hope not that I, I hope we're not going to see hospitalizations and deaths escalate that we did in previous surges. And that's because so many of our most vulnerable, the elderly, the people with chronic medical illnesses have been vaccinated. And that's a really good thing. But that said, there are several other considerations too. One is that we have a lot of people in this country, tens of millions of people who are unprotected, not by choice. And again, as the mother of two unvaccinated children, I don't think it's really fair for us to be putting our kids at higher risk because some people have decided that they wish to not get vaccinated and still want to be engaging in public activities without a mask. Again, the honor system in this case has not been working. The second thing is too, the more these this pandemic rages, the more it's actually harming all of us. The harder it is for kids to be back in school without schools having to close. The more likely it is that we might get new mutations in the future that may evade the protection of our vaccines. The more likely it is that we may have restrictions, again, that harm our economy, that prevent our travel from resuming as it was before. And so, and I think the other component we, we have to keep in mind is, again, what are our values? as a society. Are we going to accept that it's okay now for the death? Yes, we have fewer deaths than before, but the deaths now are among younger people. Is it okay that we're now leaving children as orphans because their parents are now dying from something that actually is a preventable disease? And again, I think as a society, we need to make some hard choices in the interest of the public's health and well-being. I want to turn to your book now uh, and, and, and get your thoughts on, on that. And I want to start with an incredible story you tell at the beginning. You talk about how you and your parents immigrated to the U.S. from China in 1990 when you were seven or eight years old. Uh, and you came with just $40 to your name after paying the plane fare visas. Can you talk a little bit about, a little bit about what your life was like in China and what brought your family to the U.S.? Well, my parents came to the U.S., I think as many did, in order to pursue the American dream. Um, my father was a political dissident. Um, I come from a family of, of, um, of dissidents, and he was jailed in China for various political activities. My mother was able to come to the U.S. first, and then my father and I followed. We initially lived in a little town in Utah and then moved out to, to, um, to, uh, to Los Angeles. And I think, you know, just like so many other immigrants, my parents went through some very difficult times. They worked multiple jobs, but still had trouble making ends meet. 
And there were times that we depended on food stamps. There were times that we were in between different houses and shelters and even experienced homelessness. And I wrote about this in this book because even though I had initially intended lifelines to be about my experience leading Baltimore's health department and the lessons that we learned in public health, I decided to tell my own story of immigration and growing up because in so many ways, that's also a story of public health, that the public services that we needed were there for me and for my family when we needed it the most. And in fact, that's what helped me and my sister and this generation to be able to achieve our dreams. One of the stories I recount early in Lifelines too is about how I watched a neighbor's child who was just a couple of years younger than me die in front of me because his grandmother was too afraid to call for help for his health because she was afraid that the immigration authorities would come and that would re uh, result in the entire family being deported. You can imagine from an early age watching a child die, in this case from asthma right in front of me, had such a profound impact on what I understood about our healthcare system, that healthcare in this country is not valued to be the right that it needs to be, and that our society treats people very differently depending on who they are and where they come from. So that very much drove my decision to enter medicine and specifically to, to become an emergency physician and work in the ER because I never wanted to be in the position where, this is the pre-Affordable Care Act days, I never wanted to be in a position where I had to make a decision about turning someone away because they couldn't pay for their care or whether they had their, whether their documentation or immigration status allowed them to be treated. Well, and of course, there's the issue of access to healthcare and health insurance. And then of course, also the other, so what we call the social determinants of health that also determine health outcomes, such as uh, housing, economic status. And I know that you, talk about some of those challenges in your book um, and, and led to your interest in public health. Um, can you talk a little more about, uh, about that, how those early experiences with those social determinants of health shaped your understanding now as a public health expert? Well, I never learned about public health as a discipline. In college, I just knew that I wanted to be a doctor and then I entered medical school and thought, I wanna be an ER doc. But it was actually working in the ER too that I saw how so many of the issues that our problems that our patients face are not problems that can be resolved within the four walls of the hospital. That actually what our patients need isn't just healthcare, it's public health. And I'll give you another example of this that um, of, of a patient whom I got to know very well working in the emergency department who came in all the time because she needed help for drug addiction. And yet every time she came in, we would essentially tell her, look, we can help you to find a slot, an outpatient slot somewhere else, but we might, it might take us weeks for us to get you that treatment. And I thought a lot about, uh, about this at the time, just thinking, how is it that we don't tell somebody who's having a heart attack, sorry, we can't get you help today, come back in three weeks if you're not dead by then. I mean, we treat the disease of addiction, we treat mental health illnesses as very different from what they are, which is illnesses and diseases that need our treatment, our compassion, um, where recovery is possible, treatment exists just like we have treatments for physical illnesses. But we were unable to get treatment for this young woman. And I remember one day she came in requesting treatment. We weren't able to find it for her. She left and then came back on my same shift. And that day it was because she had gone out, overdosed, and we were unable to resuscitate her. 
And that was a driving force for my coming to Baltimore to become the health commissioner and specifically to address addiction and access to addiction services as one of the top issues, because this is a solvable problem. This requires all hands on deck. This requires us to, to do exactly as you said, Paige, treat housing as a healthcare issue. Understand that food that we eat and the water that we, uh, that we drink and the services that we have access to, not just for physical health, but also for so much else in our lives, that also is part of healthcare. But that's also one I um, am dedicated to this field of public health so that we can address these other issues that have such a profound impact on our patients' lives. And why, when I, when I started as the health commissioner in Baltimore, I really prioritized working on addiction. One of the first things that we did was to issue a blanket prescription for naloxone. So I became the single prescriber for this opioid antidote medication to every single resident in our city. And in a three-year period, everyday residents used Narcan or naloxone to save over 3,000 lives in Baltimore. I'm very proud of that, but also so proud of the other work that we've done to fight stigma, to increase access to treatment, um, and other elements that I think are integral to this understanding of public health. So when you think about all of those actions that you took in, on the opioid crisis in Baltimore, what are some lessons you learned there and things that you think could be applied nationally as we sort of turn our attention back as a country to this crisis? One is that we have to start somewhere and do what it is that we can right now. One of the problems with the understanding of public health as being so broad as it is, we talk about issues of disparities and inequities, they're deeply entrenched and everything affects health and health affects everything. Sometimes you can get caught in decision paralysis. Sometimes you can be stuck admiring the problems, if you will, and just looking at the wide swath of actions that have to be taken and thinking, well, there's nothing really that I can do because I can't address all these problems. But actually, we need to start somewhere. And it's okay that we're not doing everything all at once. You know, I was criticized in Baltimore for not focusing initially as much on increasing addiction treatment because ultimately, Narcan or Naloxone is what will save your life right now, but you still need long term treatment. But you got to start somewhere. And as one of my outreach workers used to say, if you don't save a life today, there's no chance of a better tomorrow. So while we were also getting addiction or um, while we were also getting Narcan distributed widely across our city, we also set up the groundwork for a 24-7 stabilization center, which is the beginning of a 24-7 ER for addiction and mental health. We also did a lot of other work um, to increase treatment by working with our hospitals and our community health partners. I think that's a lesson for you got to start somewhere, lay the groundwork, show the community that we're doing something that is in line with our overall goal. But you have to start with that initial action. Another lesson is the importance of public-private partnership. One of the other programs that I'm very proud of in Baltimore that my predecessor started, that I continue to lead, and that continues to be very strong today, is Be More for Healthy Babies which within a seven-year period involved over 150 public and private partners to reduce infant mortality in our city by over 38%. And because we also had a focus specifically on addressing health equity, we reduced the gap between black and white infant mortality in our city in that same time period by over 50%. So addressing disparities is possible. Um, we need to see disparities also not as a zero-sum game. You don't take years of life from one group of people and add it to another. Um, it's, it's a case of all boats rise. Um, and it's also, I think, a sign that when you get people together on a single goal, 
that these public-private partnerships can and are extremely effective. I hope that all of these lessons will be instructive too going forward, as you mentioned, in COVID-19, which is the biggest public health crisis of our time. But I also think that that kind of local leadership, learning from people on the front lines, heeding their lessons, as I detail in Lifelines, will be really important too. So, as you say, we had made progress before COVID on opioids. There was so much focus on this, but how concerned are you now that the pandemic has really set us back in that effort, especially considering the overdose numbers that we saw come out a couple weeks ago? Right. I mean, we just saw those numbers of 93,000 deaths in a year, a 30% increase over before, which, by the way, we were already in an opioid epidemic. We, the opioid epidemic didn't go away with the pandemic of COVID-19, if anything, it's gotten worse because we know that addiction is a disease of isolation and that recovery depends on relationships. And so when you remove the physical relationships that many people have had, of course, it's going to get worse. I also worry, by the way, not just about addiction and overdose, but all these other public health issues that have been neglected because of COVID-19, not because of anyone's fault per se. I mean, I know that our local health officials, state health officials were so stretched with their budgets even prior to the pandemic. Local and state public health departments have lost 30% of their workforce in the last several dozen years because of the recession, because people just don't think about public health, because prevention, which is the work of public health, doesn't have a face, right? We are effective when we prevent something from happening. And so as a result, our programs become the first on the chopping block. Well, what happened during COVID is that these very under-resourced programs, the priorities got shifted entirely to COVID, understandably so. But then COVID continued. This was not like a hurricane that struck an area for a while. And then after a few weeks, you go back to these other areas. We have not returned our attention. And as a result, we also have issues with STI, HIV climbing in parts of the country. We have an obesity epidemic. We have lack of attention to mental health. We're not focusing on our children's health. Many programs were based in schools. And when schools were not allowed to be in person, those programs had to stop as well. So I really worry about this. I hope that going forward, that we recognize the problems of not investing in public health and that as new funding comes in, yes, of course, it's important to continue the work in COVID, which is not over. It's also really important to prevent the next pandemic. But I also hope that we do not simply equate public health with infection control because there's so much else in public health that we also need to turn our attention to. And I also um, am extremely concerned about the recent efforts by some legislatures to even restrict public health authority even further. This could have repercussions for many years to come. And I just hope that if it's anything COVID has taught us, it's the importance of public health in our lives every day to save lives and to change lives. Dr. Wen, I think one of the things people appreciate you about you is that you are not hesitant to speak your mind, uh, even when perhaps that opinion may not be popular. I know you took a short-lived job as head of Planned Parenthood shortly after your time in Baltimore, and uh, there was some controversy, as it was reported, over Planned Parenthood's role, and you had expressed some concerns about it becoming too politicized. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that experience and whether you're concerned that the politicization of Planned Parenthood could undermine its role as a healthcare provider. Look, I remain very concerned about where we are with women's health in this country. 
we are in a situation now where women today, pregnant women today, are more likely to die during pregnancy than our mothers were. We are the only industrialized country in the world for which that's true. We have a situation where black women today are three times more likely to die in childbirth than white women. And why are all of these things happening? There are a variety of reasons, but one of the main reasons is that women's health is unattended to that it's not just that something terrible is happening during labor and delivery. Of course, there are things that happen, including systemic racism and healthcare that need to be addressed, but it's also that women are unhealthy to begin with. And I really hope that we as a society focus on the holistic needs of women. I would love to see, and my vision remains, for there to be a system in which people can go to their doctor, let's say for reproductive health care, for birth control or pap smear. But while they're there, they're not just getting one part of their body attended to. That's not how medicine works. I hope that while they're there, they also have their blood pressure checked. They are also, um, they also, if they have diabetes, also are able to get their diabetes managed at that time. If they are diagnosed with depression, they're able to see a mental health counselor. If they have food insecurity, they're able to see somebody who can address that issue. I mean, that's the kind of holistic need that, um, that really requires to be met in this country. And I really worry about what, where we are in this country where the politics have dominated over our um, ability to meet the needs of women and other underserved populations. In the last fourth of your book, you talk about the pandemic and how the U.S. has responded. And one of the chapters is called, uh, quote, the pandemic of misinformation. Um, and U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, uh, who you went to med school with, I understand, recently issued an advisory President. about the dangers. Uh, okay. Of, of misinformation and disinformation. Um, if you were advising the Biden administration on this issue, what steps would you recommend to combat misinformation? It's a very challenging issue. And I heard Dr. Fauci say during a CNN interview, something to the effect of if we had this level of misinformation and disinformation during polio and smallpox, we probably will still have polio and smallpox today. And that's really sobering because so much of how we got to where we are today with the extreme politicizing of masks and vaccines is a lot of bad actors who actually are knowingly spreading misinformation, disinformation. Um, and to that effect, I do think that the Surgeon General's advisory saying that health disinformation is also a public health crisis was really important because as I thought uh, Dr. Murthy said very well at the time, Disinformation takes away people's freedom. It takes away people's freedom to make the at the most informed decision for themselves and for their families. And disinformation is how we got to where we are, where people don't believe in masks or somehow fear the vaccine more than they hear the virus, more than they fear the virus, which obviously is totally backwards. And so I think that a lot more needs to be done in this regard. Um, I, I do think that we need to um, also embrace our own individual role, which also was something I thought that the Surgeon General did very well here to say to someone in our lives, we are the most trusted messenger. And so we should approach those individuals who have not yet been vaccinated and have the ability to, we should continue to have the conversation with them, approach them with compassion and empathy, because each of us can also make a difference here as well. Uh, we're almost out of time, but I want to ask you about a personal experience um, that you wrote about. You were pregnant during the pandemic, and after you gave birth, you enrolled in the Johnson & Johnson vaccine trial. A few weeks later, your husband gets COVID. 
then your kids get sick. Uh, what an experience. Can you talk a little bit about that? What was that like? And did that reshape at all your view of the pandemic and how it should be combated? You know, I think so many of us during this pandemic lived through it in different ways. I mean, I all my work is around COVID-19 and, um, and doing research and analysis and raising public awareness and helping people to navigate these decisions. But I guess I never, I mean, I, I guess I thought it was possible that I would live through this as a patient or as a caregiver, but you don't really know until it really hits you. And so in this situation, situation. This was before vaccines became available. One day, my, my husband just started feeling really tired and he'd been working really hard. He had just started a company. Um, and so we thought he was just really tired. And he actually was having symptoms, as it turns out, for days before we realized that, oh my goodness, this could actually potentially be COVID. And we didn't realize this until he developed a fever, along with just feeling tired and, and having a headache. And so he tested positive. By then, our kids had also been exposed. I thought at that point I was enrolled in a vaccine trial, but I didn't know whether I got the placebo or the vaccine. And given that all my all everybody in my family needed to be taken care of, I thought I don't really have an option but to take care of them to the best of my ability. And so I thought I have a 50% chance of being protected because of the vaccine. I'm going to take that chance. And so I took care of my family. Thankfully, everybody is doing well now, um, quite a few months after this initially happened. But um, I was, by the way, very surprised to learn when I was finally unblinded in the study that I got the placebo after all because I never contracted COVID. But I think that this is just a reminder to me of how we all live through the pandemic in our own ways. We live through this as individuals, as working parents, taking care of children who may not have been in school or, or may not have had childcare. We lived through this as individuals whose family members got sick or in some cases tragically passed away. Um, and I think we're still very much living through the pandemic now. It's a pandemic that we can end. It's a pandemic that we have the ability to end with vaccinations. And so if it's any message coming out of this, I hope that people will decide to get the vaccine today and also recognize the role that public health plays in our lives every single day. Well, I'm glad to hear that your husband and kids are doing well. We're out of time, but thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Wen. It was a great conversation as always. Thank you, Paige. Uh, well, Dr. Wen's book is called Lifelines, A Doctor's Journey in the Fight for Public Health, and you can get it today wherever books are sold. To check out what interviews we have coming up, please head to WashingtonPostLive.com to register and find more information about all of our upcoming programs. I'm Paige Winfield Cunningham, and as always, thanks so much for watching. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.